No more bullshit. Dig it? No more bullshit. You want answers? CliffCentral.com Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on CliffCentral.com. It's uh, a little bit later on a Tuesday than we'd normally start off on the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. I'm uh, your host, Alicia Alumbus, and I'm joined in studio by my producer, Duncan. Very uh, intimate uh, little two of us here in the studio today. Um, we're going to be talking um, some of the xenophobic violence that's been happening in Soweto. We've got Greg Nicholson standing on the line um, for us to, to give us a first-hand account of uh, what's been happening in Soweto. Greg, you there? Hi, Stuart. How are you? Uh, all right, Greg. Um, a couple of rough days in Soweto, some unsavory things happening down there. You've been there. You've been on the front lines. Um, give us the lowdown. What's been happening there? I think actually we have to go back to, I think, on, on Monday night last week in Snake Park, Soweto, when what happened there was it actually just started out as quite a sort of innocent incident between uh, the Mali store owner and a boy who everyone says was high on Yope. And according to, to multiple witnesses that spoke to Daily Maverick, um, this boy is a thief in the, from, from, one of, from one of the father shops there. And the Mali store owner actually confronted him and told him to go away because he always steals. Mm. The boy wouldn't go away, and then the Somali store owner brought a, brought a machete out, and then the boy refused to go away and got quite angry and agitated. And then one of the one of the co shopkeepers, another Somali national, um, brought out a gun, and that sort of enraged the community. They they you know already there's a lot of this feeling that you know um, foreigners shouldn't belong there. They're taking South African business and whatnot. And mm-hmm. so when these guys saw this community owner with a gun, they thought that wasn't right. And some, some of them thought the gun might be illegal or they wondered whether a foreigner can own a gun. And so then what happened there in Snake Park is the community met. And from from some of our sources that tell us, they say that the, some of the community leaders were saying that this isn't okay, that um, we don't support xenophobia. But, um, sorry, there's just some noise here. Can, can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah, we can hear you clearly, Greg. So, so, yeah, I'll continue. So, so what happened then is some of the community leaders said, we don't support xenophobia, but we can't tolerate this sort of stuff happening. And so the action they decided to take then, because the police had arrived and, and were protecting that store, so the action they decided to take then was to loot the other foreign-owned stores in Snake Park. So they went from this supermarket called the Waka Waka supermarket, down around the corner to, to another supermarket or, or plaza shop called uh, the Bafana store, then they went um, up about a few hundred meters away to another place, I think, called the Russell Supermarket. And it was at the Russell Supermarket where uh, the store owner there, I think he was, um, I think he's a Somali national. He um, frightened, um, woke up in the night and with people trying to loot his store, sort of scared them off, they came back. And he ended up um, opening fire with a, with a illegal firearm that the police have now found. And in that process, he killed a 14-year-old local boy. Um, and so really that kick-started this whole thing. Um, since then, we've seen protests or, or lootings across the winter. Greg, but the, the, there's obviously an underlying issue here that there, there is this resentment um, towards foreigners that has just, I mean, there was, a, there was an incident that sparked this, this, uh, this violence. Um, mm. That underlying sentiment, where does it stem from? What's the origin of this um, sentiment towards foreigners who are working in places like Soweto? It's so deep, eh? And, and, and there really are a lot of underlying causes. So, so first of all, I think you're right, and we have to ask, 
this one incident happens where where there's you know a bit of um, a confrontation between a store owner and a, and a local resident who, who everyone says was a thief and a yopper addict. Why does it stem out of control and all of a sudden start looting across the Weto and and start complete violence? You know, um, and I think there's a number of issues. First of all, a lot of people just tell us that they really they really want these foreigners to go. They're angry with them, and I think part of that is that these people, you know, from from Somalia, Ethiopia, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, um, particularly, have been able to come into townships across the country and and do business quite well. You know, they're they're known for their business skills, and, and most of their plaza shops often are more competitive than the local ones, which which studies say have shorter hours and don't have the networks that, that some of these foreign um, business owners have in terms of getting stock and supplies. And they also don't have the capital. So I think there's a lot of resentment there from the business point of view in terms of that these guys can come in and they do work very well and they thrive. But there's also, there's also quite... Um, problematic issues in some of these plaza shops and things where you do have these foreigners who feel a little bit unwelcome or marginalized and these locals who, who sort of want them to go and so often you get little confrontations and I even see it myself in my local areas where where you sort of there's, there's quite a sort of dicey relationship between particularly sort of black Africans mm-hmm. and these uh, sort of often often people from around the Indian area or, or Somalia where they insult each other using racial slurs and things mm-hmm. like that, and they're very confrontational against each other. And so, so there's that as well. But then at the same time, of course, we can't ignore just the general underlying causes in South Africa that, that really do fuel a lot of this stuff. Um, we've seen a lot of these incidents that really is being pushed by the youth, all these looting across the Soweto and how it's spread in some other areas now. The police have even said that some days were calm until school went out. So when school went out, that's when looting really picked up. So it's actually a lot of this stuff is being pushed by school children and, and some adults, of course. But but from that, I think we see that number one, you've got young people who are always going to get involved in stupid sort of things. But I think it's the joblessness, youth unemployment, and then their parents are also suffering. Um, so so that sort of gives you some sort of motivation to steal, you know, to go and do something stupid and even potentially risk your life for you know for a few cold drinks and, and maybe airtime. Um, the, the inequality that I think that, that we've seen across the country really does fuel a lot of this stuff, and it's, it's disappointing because it goes back to a lot bigger questions in South Africa that no mm. one has a, has an easy answer to. But things like inequality, where people just have a perceived sense of, of injustice, um, especially when you're so close to someone who is doing well, um, when you yourself and your community are, are, are suffering. So I think I think there are a lot of these things as well. Um, yeah, I think the xenophobic issue, or, or what some people say is Afrophobic issue, um, in South Africa runs so deep, and is actually it's so hard to explain. Yeah, it it does seem like there's a big element of this stems from uh, the frustration that the youth are feeling, and this is an outlet for that frustration, and just happens to be um, an easy target in being able mm-hmm. to point. At foreigners and to say, well, you know, I, I'm sitting here without a job. I'm sitting here, you know, in poverty. Um, you know, you come in and, you know, you're an easy target uh, coming in as a foreigner who is, is doing well or better than m- most people in those surroundings. And um, they just become this channel that they can, that they, can, well, a way for them to channel their frustrations onto onto someone like that. Most, most definitely. Um, and, I, and I think it's really disappointing, but. 
it's also like we're seeing the service delivery process. You know, it doesn't quite make sense for for communities that, that may lack, you know, proper water, housing, roads, electricity services, um, to then to then take to the streets, particularly often these things are led by young people, to take to the streets and damage, you know, their, their traffic lights, their libraries, their community halls, their clinics, shut down, shut down the whole community because so nobody can go to work at all, which which you imagine further entrenches the, the suffering that they face. But but it's just one more manifestation of these frustrations that I think have been building up um, um, over the years, particularly sort of after now we've passed 20 years of democratic South Africa, that that build up more and more, and they do they will and do sometimes spill over, and and in this case when they've spilled over, the the, the target point for the frustration has been foreign nationals. But I think also we have to talk about one other thing that I think the government has also do a little bit better in terms of. Number one, registering these businesses. Some of the police told me that a lot of these businesses aren't registered. It's very hard to actually, if you want to protect them, it's very hard to actually find them until until they're being attacked. Number two, make sure that the foreign nationals are, are proper documented and they have the proper papers. And also make sure, try to avoid the problem that you see of um, unlicensed firearms being used being used by some of these foreign store owners because they are so scared. So I think there's, there's also that dynamic added to the mix. Um, Greg, just going back to that point on, on an outlet of frustration for the youth, um, it's been interesting for me to see um, a country like Greece, who in the last 10 years has gone through, through some very difficult uh, economic times and challenges over there. And what we're seeing now as a result of uh, the implosion of that, of that economy um, is that a third of, of the people are now living in poverty in, in Greece. Uh, and what we've seen there as well, and a lot of similarities um, where people are lashing out at foreigners um, you know, a, 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 a lot of anti-Semitism is rising, uh, sentiment is rising up in, in Greece. People are lashing out at migrant workers from places like Albania, for example. Um, and also, uh, I mean, and even then moving on to homophobic, um, violence and, and, um, and anti-homophobic, uh, sentiment as well, rising there as well. So we're seeing a direct link, um, coming through. Over and over again, uh, that youth unemployment, um, that poverty, that you know, poor economic circumstances uh, are, are kind of the base reason for a lot of this, uh, a lot of this violence. And it's not just, it's not just uh, on in South Africa or on the African continent that we're experiencing this. We're seeing this happening in places like Greece and and probably other places in Europe where those those economic challenges are, are, are starting to become almost, you know, you don't want to use a word, but Africa-like in terms of, you know, the pervasiveness of the population that is feeling those economic challenges? Mm-hmm. I think I think it, it, it is interesting. I think it is a global phenomenon um, that is experienced and manifests itself in different ways, you know, throughout different parts of the world. Um, but but I think in, in many parts of the world what we're seeing now is we're seeing rising inequality. We've seen um, a very, very uncertain times, both, both politically and, and economically, and particularly slow growth. You know, so since I guess 2008, where we've around much of the world have been struggling um, to, to sort of bounce back from um, from the global financial crisis, and there has been a bit of a resetting of different institutions and different um, economic policies around the world. But it hasn't been. We haven't even seen any sort of rapid, huge growth. Maybe a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. But then I think what what generally happens with people, and this is sort of a, a broad generalization, of course, but what I think often happens when people are going through these difficult circumstances and perceive 
that they they deserve and want better. Um, they often find will find ways to to I guess lash out or to express express their disgruntlement and anger um, in any sort of way they can. And if you're just an average citizen on the street and someone who's sort of suffering from from things like inequality, poverty, um, lack of education, joblessness. You, you, it's not easy to, you know, access a minister or the president or even know how to speak to the government or use correct democratic channels, even if there are such channels to give your voice. And so I think what often happens is you, you end up protesting or you end up taking it out on sort of minorities who, who are an easy, um, easy sort of target to lay blame on. Um, but I also think what, what it's a sign of too is it's our increasingly globalized world. You know, we have, so many people sort of traveling around the world, moving to different economic opportunities or, or, or migrating for whatever other reasons. And, and, and in this world today, I think more, more people are migrating and living in different spaces and working in different places than we've ever seen before. So there really is a prominent, um, a, a prominent sort of migrant community in most countries now. Um, for for these targeted attacks to sort of happen and and sort of like a confrontation, I think of um, both both sort of stronger nationalism that often often increases in in sort of difficult times um, clashing with with the globalized world. Greg, how do we fix this? What do we do? What do we need to do? Do we need community leaders to get involved here to embark on a not-in-my-name campaign? Do we need the South African Police Service to get more involved? I mean, you know, not exactly an organization that covers itself in glory in the last couple of years in dealing with the public in South Africa on many levels. But in your estimation, where do we start? How do we fix this problem from a South African perspective? I think, yeah, you mentioned sort of community leaders and leaders um, sort of embarking on a Not In My Name campaign, and we have seen that a little bit in the last week. It took a few days, but I think by, so these attacks sort of started on Monday. I think by Friday, we had a statement sort of from the president, a very strong statement, but um, also uh, Premier, Premier David Makura was in, was in some of these affected areas and, and sort of saying that, you know, this must stop. Um, we saw Hosang MEC also also sort of take a strong position on this, as well as a few church leaders and, and community leaders. And I think that has actually helped really stem um, this, this, this continuing. So I think these things do work. If community leaders um, stand up and say no, we cannot we cannot allow this to happen. So they must. I think I think that will help. But we must. Uh, they must be very um, proactive in doing this. We can't wait for these situations to happen again. We can't wait till, till stores are being attacked or people are being um, being violated in the streets. We, we have to have this sort of as a continuing um, dialogue and debate. And then, and then if anything does ever flare up, uh, we need community leaders to, to, to announce these actions. But I think we must also take it to the local level because such um, anti-foreigner sentiment or xenophobia, if you will, Particularly expresses itself, you know, in in the townships and and and, and in local communities. And we need councillors and we need mayors and we need uh, ward ward councillors to be saying this all the time to, to their communities because often because this is largely a community sort of often this often um, anti foreign and foreign sentiment is very much community help. And so we need leaders at that community level to really denounce it and to really speak out against it. Um, in the long term. Uh, I think, I think it's a little bit more difficult to to challenge, but it, uh, it's a hard one. I think I think we must just continue to focus on economic growth, increase um, a, a better education, more job opportunities, 
um, really confronting the inequalities that we face, even if it's just speaking about it um, now and, and hopefully hopefully doing something about it in the future. So, so there's no easy long-term solution, but I think also in the short term, we do need a better police response. I'm not sure if you saw, but this week there were some reports of police actually being involved in the looting and encouraging looting. So I think that, that was really disappointing. Um, the police are outnumbered in these sort of things, and often they are out um, strategized. I guess. The community can easily move. The police are out at one barber shop. The cops can, you know... <laughs> so if you can't beat him, join him. Is, is that what they... Basically, basically. And, you know, it's not bad if you're a cop on a cop on duty and you get a few free cold drinks and, you know, 29 round protocol or something like that, I guess. So, so that was also, I think, really disappointing, which is the last sort of thing we needed. And from what the police say, it does seem like sort of rotten elements in the cops. That still seems like those rotten elements are mm. super basic. Mm. And so many issues at the macro level as well that we need to tackle in order to fix these things, not just down at the local level. I mean, obviously, as you say, we need uh, economic growth, we need uh, job growth, we need opportunities, uh, and mm. and those things uh, aren't always going to be uh, helped along by things like power cuts, for example, and and load shedding, as well as you know um, the other economic challenges and poor growth that South Africa faces. Um, Greg, thanks for joining us today, um, and hopefully, we won't need to see you down in Soweto again. Anytime soon for stories like these. <laughs> Thanks, Julie. Have a great day. Thanks for having me. All right. Me. Cheers, Greg. Um, Cheers. On, on the line from Cape Town, we've got uh, Daily Maverick sport writer Antoinette Miller. Uh, Ant, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, so, pretty big game for Bafana tonight. Um, need a, a bit of a miracle uh, for, for things to go their way to, to progress to the next round. Do you see it happening? Uh, to be honest, I don't see it happening. I think if I was an eternal optimist and perhaps one of those with trust and shakes fans, then yes, I would probably see that, you know, just, just this like magic about him and, and everything like that. But unfortunately, I'm objective and quite cynical, so I, I don't see it happening. The, I mean, this has been the pool of death, uh, you know, looking at uh, the teams, Ghana, Algeria and Senegal, who are all top rated teams uh, in, in Africa. So uh, it was always going to be a hard task. But, you know, the team did go into the tournament with a lot of uh, with a couple of good results under the belt and a lot of optimism, um, you know. In all likelihood, probably going to get knocked out tonight. Will they, will they look back and say this was a, another failure of, a, of an attempt at AFCON, or has the team turned the corner? Have you seen, um, you, you know, enough improvement in that to say, you know, we're on the right track here? Yeah, I, I don't think it'll be a failure at all. I mean, considering that before Shakes took over, the Africa weren't even expected to qualify for the Africa Cup of Nations. And they managed to qualify unbeaten in their group, in a group that had Nigeria, the defending champions in it. Um, I think they'll be disappointed because so many of the results that didn't go their way was because of little things that they just didn't get right. But definitely not a failure. And I think also Wayne Shah is building the team, using youth and relying on youth and home-based players. That's a positive step because Safa for what? Sorry, yeah, Safa are leaving him to do what he wants. And he wants to use the guys who play the, the soccer motor in South Africa and he wants to use the younger guys who don't have much experience to build towards, you know, the next World Cup and the next tournament. So getting knocked out tonight, you know, and definitely not a failure. Uh, a couple of selection question marks, a third goalkeeper in in, in third game in the AFCON. Um, there have been a couple of selection issues. Uh, would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. Um, and also he only picked two centre-backs by two centre-back from the entire squad, I think. 
Um, but again, it's one of those things, I suppose he's, he's new and he's not new, but he's new in the role and he also perhaps wanted to, to prove a point in terms of relying on what his mind tells him and, and not what anyone else tells him. So, yeah, a bit stubbornness from him, but that's the way he's always been and it was probably the way he was fired the, the last time he had a, mm-hmm. a stint in charge of South Africa. Yeah, and, and Parker again on the bench uh, for, for this evening's game. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's a bit strange, and especially the way he dropped um, Darren Keith after he saw Howler in the first match and selected another fresh goalkeeper, but he kept on persisting with Sakela Rantu, who hasn't really showed much in front of goal. He's very frustrating. So, you know, it's it's not even muchness, really. Um, both positive and negative, but overwhelmingly positive, I think. Um, who've been the teams that have impressed you? Who's looking like a winner at this stage? difficult, you know, it's one of those tournaments and this is going to sound so cliche, but anyone can still win it, because at the start of the tournament, I'd have said, Algeria without a doubt, will we'll win it and they'll run away with it, but they haven't been that convincing and they certainly haven't been as convincing as they were at the World Cup, so who's impressed me the most? Oh, I don't know. Um, I like the way Senegal has played, they're very physical, they're very attacking, uh, but to pick a winner at this stage, it's impossible. Flip a coin, or you know, throw a Rubik's Cube in there and, and pick a winner from there. And if history is anything to go by, form going into the competition hasn't exactly been a good indicator of the eventual winners of the competition. We have seen some, you know, surprise dark horses coming from, um, you know, from left field and w- and winning in the past. Um, so, yeah, uh, wouldn't be a surprise um, to see maybe some of the unfavored or, you know, uh, less known teams ending up lifting the trophy at the end of the tournament. Um, and coming up uh, in a couple of weeks' time, you must be salivating at the prospect uh, of, the Cricket World Cup? Um, I'm not so much celebrating if the hours that will involve uh, watching the Cricket World Cup, but of course, um, they're always exciting, and I think by the time it kicks off, you've got so much adrenaline from being awake for about 24 hours straight if there's a game on at 3 o'clock that, that, that just fuels your desire to keep on watching cricket. Yeah, uh, the times uh, are going to be all over the show, mostly late at night, and this is really where um, students or parents with young kids um, don't <laughs> take advantage of their nocturnal habits. Um, it, this seems like you know another case of uh, the best team South Africa has ever sent to a World Cup yet again. Um, obviously going to a place that's not on the subcontinent, the World Cup being held in Australia and New Zealand, a place where South Africa have done really well touring in the last couple of couple of years. Do you share the sentiment uh, this is the best team and, and, and possibly our best chance of lifting the cup? Yeah, I mean, it's a strange thing. People keep saying, oh, this is the best chance South Africa ever had of winning silverware. Um, I mean, it's strange why that's sort of a, a testament to just how much cricket and talent South Africa produces all the time, but on paper, yes, Tashimama, A.B. de Villiers, Quentin de Koff, Belstein, Mornay Morkel, Vernon Slander, that, that probably is the best team they have. And like you mentioned, the conditions will play a massive role because it is also conditions that are much more similar to South Africa compared to subcontinental South where they have struggled in the past. Um, we're looking at, I think, the first big game, big test in, in, in our pool is, uh, is coming up against India. India... Haven't had the greatest uh, of series uh, down under at the moment. They seem to be struggling a bit um, down in Australia. But when the World Cup comes around, all that goes out the window. 
Yeah, of course it does. But I think also South Africa on a really good run of momentum and all the players are sort of hitting form at the right time. I know it's just the West Indies that they're playing at the moment. But I think guys like David Miller finally showing that he can get those big scores and he, he doesn't just carelessly throw his wicket away. Um, all those sorts of things are counting in their favour. Um, but yeah, I'm, I don't know. It's, it's one of those weird things where India also have some superb players on their side at the moment. But it's just about the office, I guess, staying calm and staying cool and just chilling and just knowing that this is the stage. And if, if somebody does fail at the order, they do have the talent lower down to back them up. Um, we can't mention the World Cup without mentioning the C word, um, choking. And um, looking at this squad, you know, it's something that every captain will have to deal with until we win one of these damn things and and put that to rest and get that monkey off off our, off our back as a cricketing nation. How do you think the guys will deal with that? I mean, it, it you know, I'm pretty sure AB de Villiers won't be able to go to a single conference without being asked about that and being asked repeatedly, repeatedly about that. How do the guys deal with that in the run up to this, uh, to this tournament? And then once they're in the tournament and hopefully looking to progress into the knockout stages? Yeah, it's sort of something that under Gary Kirsten, he with them to make peace with the fact that yes, they have chosen in the past. And people will keep calling them chokers, even if they don't choke. They just lose in a knockout match. Um, interestingly, they're not taking a psychologist, Paddy Upton, with them to the tournament. So I think, to an extent, maybe they have tried to deal with it on their own and within the team environment itself, saying, look, guys, this is what you get called. This is what happens. Um, and it's about when they step onto the field in the knockout match, if they make it that far, to put that aside and just say, look, whatever happens, whatever happens in the media, we'll deal with that afterwards. Right now, when we walk out there, let's just do what we've practiced and what we've um, perfected over the last few months in the build-up to this tournament. Who are the danger teams? Who are the guys we need to watch out for when we get to, uh, hopefully, get to the knockout stages? Uh, New Zealand, definitely. Big threat. Um, And this is a bit of a wild card, but Ireland are one of those strange teams that can do... They can beat any team on their day. Um, and then I'm not only saying this with my vested interest in the country, but England have seemed to turn the corner themselves somewhat. Um, and I think they might surprise people, uh, you know, if, if people don't take them seriously. And, of course, Australia. You can never underestimate Australia in Australia. Um, and with, with the guy, Mr. Steve Smith, who is just, I don't know what's happened to him or how he's suddenly become a... Major yeah, a demigod. Cricketer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, then, then him too. So. Yeah, I was um, reading an interesting article uh, in the Sydney Morning Herald um, about the, um, the 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 fight basically that uh, Michael Clark has been yeah. having with uh, administrators and bosses of Cricket Australia, um, and how the team is now starting to revel. Uh, under not having him around and not having his, you know, his influence in the team and uh, obviously a very different approach from someone like Steve Smith, who, um, by all accounts seems to be a, a lot more easygoing than, than, than Michael Clark, uh, and could be work in Australia's favor, you know, should he be declared unfit to play for the World Cup? I've actually just read that article through and I thought it was very interesting. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's amazing what a difference just taking on one sort of negative, I don't want to call it a negative influence because Clark has been sold in the whole for you, you thing happens. He can be very calming and very statesman-like, but how taking away the headmaster kind of approach can 
change a team's approach completely. Um, and I think Steve Smith has done that because he's he's transformed himself over the last two years or over the last year or so into something quite extraordinary that nobody sort of expected him to to do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think they're a big threat. But um, hopefully, if South Africa do have to play them, it doesn't happen until the final. Yeah, and then hopefully we 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 crush them on home ground to make up for that ninety nine <laughs> semi Um And you mentioned England; um, they'll be going there, sort of um, without much fanfare. I mean, there there'll always be the the people uh, at home, you know, saying the cup's coming home and all that, and those ardent supporters like maybe one in the living room next to you uh, at the moment. Um, but they're going there without Kevin Peterson. Uh, good thing or bad thing, uh, are England's chances better for it or worse off for no Kevin Peterson in that World Cup squad? Uh, yeah, again, like you said, it's amazing what a difference just removing that one influence in the team can make. And talented as KP is, I think he's showed since the start of his career that no matter where he goes, is always going to have issues with someone. It could be the, the kit person or the captain of the team. Katie's personality is just volatile and it's going to clash with someone at some point during some form of competition. So I think, you know, in the greater scheme of things, not having him there probably is, is a good thing just from a team role perspective. Um, but of course, you know, he is extremely talented. Uh, so from that aspect, yeah, they will miss him. But, you know, from a, from a like I said, a moral it's probably good that he's not there. When you look at the South African team, um, you just see pluses and great players all around that, that starting 11. You've got a, a hugely talented top five, top six. You've got some incredible fast bowlers. We've got, for the first time, an attacking spinner. Is there an area you worry about that you think that's our weakness? That's the one area where teams will ide- our opponents will identify and look to challenge us on as soon as that opportunity arises. Yeah, the death bowling, which has been an issue for ages, um, and it's weird that even with guys like that, and more and more on the team, they still struggle to get it right at the death. Um, and I think the average run to Africa have conceded in the last five overs over the last six months or so has been close to 60-70 almost every single time. So for me, getting the death bowling right, and that's something they haven't really been able to practice against the West Indies because they've just collapsed. Um, and then in the ODI that just happened, we saw again that when the backer bowlers came in, they had no answer for bowling at the best, and Andre Russell, brilliant he was, took advantage of not really having plans or not using his strategy properly. So for me, um, the death bowling definitely a big concern. And then the tail is quite long. I mean, they only back up to J.P. Dumini, really. So it's just there's no real solid all-round in this. But I think on the rare day that everyone fails, they might find themselves in a bit of trouble with the batting because these days you want to score more than 300 to be sure that you're going to win an ODI. Um, and the batting might just be a little bit thin if there's a major collapse or some, some bowler from the opposition has a brilliant day. Well, that was quite an interesting stat. I think South Africa have the best record um, since 2013 of any team uh, when batting first, posting more than 250. They've won, I think, 13 out of 17 games where that scenario has has come up. So do you think that'll be the strategy for them going forward in the World Cup is bat first, get the top six to put on some big runs, uh, and then you know take early wickets to put the, the, the side under massive pressure batting second? Yeah, definitely, because uh, like I mentioned before, 
um, that because the batting lineup is so strong, they have to rely on them. And uh, it was last year where there was, was I can't remember the exact fact, but South Africa's chasing record was absolutely horrible. And then during the tri-series in Zim last year, they sort of tested themselves uh, back in second, but just to make sure. But yeah, if they win the toss, I think nine out of ten times we're going to do that first, just because, I mean, if we've got a top six like that, we win back first. Um, what about the all-rounder position? I mean, that uh, there was obviously some, you know, murmurings, or I wouldn't say controversy, but you know, someone like a Ryan McLaren must have felt extremely hard done by not to have been selected uh, for this World Cup. Um, yeah, I think Ryan McLaren can feel more aggrieved from a purely bowling perspective. He was the best bowler for 2013, always taking wickets, always up there in the averages. Um, don't think he proved himself enough as a batsman. And especially when they went to Australia last year for about five months series, he had a terrible time, and that was probably mm. that was probably his best now, really. That you know, uh, and like ended up with him being on the sidelines or out of the squad completely. Um, okay, so we need to pick uh, one star. Um, who's going to win this World Cup for us? Um, who's going to be, we, when we look back once the tournament is done and dusted and there's a ticker tape parade through the cities of South Africa with baby de Villiers lofting that trophy for us to see, um, who in your estimation is going to be that person we're going to look back and say, this was our man of the tournament. This is, this is the person who, who finally brought this cup home to us. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be Avery de Villiers. I mean, the form that he's in at the moment, the form he has been in is just, it's on another level to any other person. I doubt that he's even human, to be honest. Uh, he's, he's just, yeah, he's a freak. Um, and I think if you have a player like that in your team who can adapt to any situation, who can play in any situation, who can do something incredible as hitting 131 balls in a day, then you're pretty settled then he's going to be your key man. Um, how do we use him? How do we, how do we get the best out of AB de Villiers? Where do you bat him in the lineup? Do you, do you, do you approach it from a X number of overs left? That's when you send him in? Yeah, um, to an extent. I mean, most people would say he should be opening because he is the best batsman and he should bat as many overs as possible. But with the way cricket is modernized, I don't think that's always necessary. Um, because with the two new balls, you can get Umla and the cost to sort of take the shine off a little bit and then, can come in with a bit faster and it's coming onto the back a bit easier. Um, so I think they should just box kids and they should do what they did at the Wanderers. Um, Zivilius wasn't meant to go in where he did, but then Domingo sort of insisted, yes, please go in. Um, and I think it's sort of just reading the situation on the day. If they if they lose quick wickets early, then sending someone like Zivilius who can both adapt and slow things down. Um, and if they if they Set a solid foundation and then bring him in lower down the order so he can have a, a blitz where David Miller, who has struggled to be that finisher, is perhaps not under so much pressure. So, again, it's one of those depends on the situation, depends on the day kind of thing. And um, do you think we can do it? Are, are we coming home with the cup? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think <laughs> I think Australia for me, um, just because of you know the whole revival they've had under Smith, but. Although I'm, I'm sure people would, would want to say yes, and I think in their in their hearts they probably think yes, but I think we can do it. I don't know. Why? Why are you just hoping not to jinx it? Um, or you know, <laughs> why? why what, what do you think? What's going to be the thing that holds us back? I think I just think mentally it might just be another step up again. Maybe that's because of years and years of ingrained trauma that's been forced in my head, especially the 
1999 edition that never actually happened. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I don't know, I'm just a bit, just mentally for me, I'm a slightly worried. And of course, the best bowling for me is, is a big issue. Uh, they brought Shaw Langeshoff in to try and remedy them, you know, varying their lengths and bowling some more Yorkers, but I haven't really seen any of that. So, yeah, for me, that, that best bowling and the mental preparation is somewhat concerning. Well, I have no uh, no qualms about saying that I think we're going to do it this time. Uh, regardless of the emotional scars and trauma that we've had to endure since 1992, um, and, and having, you know, a run of bad luck has to come to an end. Um, I think that, you know, the, the, the squad is, um, you know, fresh enough and new enough. We don't have, uh, you know, a lot of that baggage. You know, we might say that, you know, we even choked in, uh, in, in the last one, but, you know, were we ever really in a position where we were ahead to throw that game away? Um, you know, which belies the definition of, of choking. So I'm hoping we will do it. I'm hoping we can stuff it to the Aussies in, in, in a final. Uh, that would be great. That would be a great way of doing it. And, uh, you know, it's also one of those things I have in the back of my mind is like when a legend like Jacques Callas, who's been almost carrying a nation for his entire career retires, um, and then the, the team goes on to win and then you can point to him and say he was holding us back uh, would also be quite ironic and quite funny. Um, but I, I'm quietly optimistic. I'm hoping for a, a Proteus and Springbok double this year. Um, I said that in 99 and geez, we had two of the most <laughs> incredibly unlucky and uh, ways of being eliminated from both of those World Cups. So I'm hoping I'm not jinxing it again. And uh, yeah, um, I, I, it's going to be a riveting tournament either way. Do you think Rafa's going to make it through to Afcon Court Finals then? Um, yeah, w- w- final all the way, and uh, I'm backing the guys all the way. It's uh, uh, I've got I've got no doubt it'll happen this time. I'm even going to put okay. money on it. Okay, well you can drink in the Kool Aid. <laughs> and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure okay. talking World Cup and Afcon with you, and uh, I, I hope we'll we'll have this conversation in the not too not too distant future where um, I can you can apologise <laughs> for your predictions. Okay, thank you so much. Cheers, Anne. Thanks. Well, that was a, the Daily Maverick show. Um, it's uh, very likely the last one that I'll be hosting um, unless I get a special guest appearance. Um, to all, all those who've been listening and downloading the podcast, uh, it's been a great experience launching this on, on Cliff Central with the Daily Maverick team. We'll have uh, uh, the, the team, the show will continue. Um, there will be uh, various journos uh, hosting in rotation until we find a permanent replacement. Um, but till then, till the next time, uh, to all the fans and the, the listeners, uh, it's been great.